Jesse, aka the Bizzle. The Bizzle. Thank you, the Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, Bizzle Cast listeners, welcome to the Shooting Star Wars podcast, episode 003, featuring my dad, Papa Bizzle himself. Thrilled to bring him back. This is a bit of a broader discussion than the first two episodes. We're talking about the state of film in 2017, the director Ryan Johnson of episode 8, of course, and sort of a tourism in film and television, the blurring line between television and film, you know, just the general state of filmmaking on all media as framed around Star Wars. I recorded this a couple weeks ago with my dad, and because of some sound issues and other podcast obligations and work stuff and so forth, just releasing it now. And so in the podcast you'll hear, it's clear that the director for episode 9, which is now J.J. Abrams, who's coming back, which I'm actually very happy about, and I'll talk about it in a future podcast, had not been hired yet. Colin Trevorrow, or Trevorrow, I'm still not sure how to pronounce his name, uh, had been fired, as you'll hear, and so we speculate about Patty Jenkins and Ava DuVernay and other possible, you know, directors for Episode Die, which has now been filled by J.J. Abrams, including Ryan Johnson. Very excited for Episode 8. Yeah, for some reason, I call him Rian Johnson at one point. I'm having pronunciation problems with name. It is Ryan Johnson. As for Colin Trevorrow, or Trevorrow, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but at the moment, uh, he's out of work indefinitely. <laughs> So it, it matters less. That's why we, we won't uh, mention who's directing episode nine. And I'm bringing on my buddies, Amon and Dietz and other people who have done Star Wars podcast with me to talk about the future of Star Wars going forward. So welcome to Shooting Star Wars episode 003. Here we go. Thanks for joining us. Papa Bizzle. Enjoy. All right. So Papa Bizzle, welcome back to the Bizzle cast. Thank you. Great to be here in with the Bizzleverse and talking movies. This is your first time on the Shooting Star Wars podcast, although we're going to really run the gamut of movies uh, this year and, and the past few years. Uh, a look back um, at so much of what's informed the podcast, but I wanted to frame it. Uh, through just some really interesting developments in, in Disney and Star Wars the last few months. Now, you heard my interview with Amon. Um, you heard my interview with Ethan, where we did talk a little bit about Star Wars. By the time yes. this comes out, I will have released my uh, podcast with Adam Tuck, which I decided to release. Oh. Um, uh, albeit with a couple cuts of, of needless bickering um, <laughs> o- over nitpicks of CGI and so forth. But right, right. for the most part, it's a good discussion. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, just to, just to summarize it, Dad, real quick, because you haven't heard it, um, he's a little bit more like Goisman in that uh, his viewing habits and that he doesn't want to know anything going in the movie, and he only sees movies basically once. Um, and he, if he loves it, like he might see it maybe a couple more times. Uh, but for him, it's all about the first viewing. And so everything's a spoiler to him. And he, you know what I mean? It's, it's mm. all about the, he doesn't want to know anything about the plot or anything, which I respect. And you'll hear in our podcast some hilarious times when I'm, I think I'm giving him neutral information and he gets really mad at me. It's, uh, it's funny. <laughs> but, but you know me, like I, I don't want, I don't actively seek spoilers, but for me, it's the repeat viewing experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think a good bridge into this, as we talk about some of the great movies we've seen uh, this year, especially in what I think has been a fantastic year of movies. Um, our favorites uh, this year, for example, I believe we saw both we saw Logan, Wonder Woman, and Baby Driver multiple times. Correct. Um, and. Uh, um, there's a couple like Dunkirk we didn't get a chance to, but we probably would have, and we'll, we're going to watch the shit out of that when it comes onto television and so forth. That's right. Um, so um, here, here's here's what I wanted to talk about, Papa B. So I wanted to break the latest Star Wars news. There's tons of great Star Wars podcasts out there, people. At the end, I might tack on some recommendations for the podcast that just talk about Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to look at the the year as a whole. Um, but the way that, you know, w- w- the biggest and most famous property, uh, Star Wars and, you know, being a part of Disney has been extremely, um, uh, how do I phrase this, non-traditional in the way they've been handling their business the last couple of years. 
Um, the most recent news is that the supposed director for Episode Nine, which would complete the uh, current Star Wars trilogy that started with Force Awakens by J.J. Abrams, we're getting the Ryan Johnson Last Jedi uh, this winter, which we'll get back to because that has been a flawless production from all accounts, and everyone's very excited. Um, and we'll bookmark that because it seems he might get tapped to do the the, the third movie as well. Um, the guy who was supposed to direct the the third movie dad's name is uh, uh colin trevorrow or trevorrow yes right and, I've, seen uh, his, I've seen his name yeah well you know he directed a little movie called jurassic world which made 1.6 billion dollars and yeah. beat both avengers movies somehow um mm. and beat rogue one beat you know all the marvel movies um everything but force awakens essentially rebooting right. a dinosaur movie uh which i'm still not completely sure how that happened um and looking back on it i was a little bit uh maybe should have covered that more because it was right after when ultron came out and it beat ultron i was just Mm. so focused on getting the bizzlecast going and my ultron coverage and i just i think i just didn't want to believe that an above average you know popcorn movie would would beat my my dearest joss whedon and the avengers um A uh, quick shout out, by the way, rest in peace um, to, um, oh, I'm blanking on his name now, the creator Len, of Len, Len Wine. Len Wine, the creator of Wolverine and a lot of the best X-Men. He was only at Marvel for a few years because, as usual, a lot of times the, the comic book writers are were dissatisfied back in the day for not getting paid enough. And he, he went to DC and he, he died, but um, everyone's paying tributes to him online and whatever. Um, and uh, it's interesting, you know, in the same year as logan which was arguably the first great movie we saw this year yeah so here's what i'm thinking dad i want to do a little overview about some of the great movies we've seen this year good but i also want to talk about the fact that you know again you have uh, one of the the oldest entertainment companies on the planet in disney you have the longest uh, running uh, movie uh, um, entertainment franchise in Star Wars now going over 40 years on all formats and all media still going strong and yet it seems to be constant turmoil but they keep churning out great stuff yeah We've also got Marvel, um, which is still making money, but both Guardians and Spider-Man and then going back to Doctor Strange is maybe starting to see a little bit of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. We've also got Marvel on television. You know, you, you stopped, uh, we both stopped Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, you a little bit later than me. Now yeah, the Inhu- yeah. they're trying to spin off the Inhumans, which is getting horrible reviews and ratings online. And we could have seen that a mile away. It's not really clear what's going on. Right. Disney is very much compartmentalized. And then you have Beauty and the Beast, which made like, you know, $1.1 billion And I thought was a very, very good movie um, and uh, did very well, obviously. Um, and yet we have a bunch of these sort of mid-range movies ranging from Baby Driver, uh, The Big Sick, Wind River, movies that are making in the tens of millions of dollars in a time when we thought the movie industry was maybe dying and just going purely for uh, blockbusters. Um, right. For example, Bizzlecast listeners, I'm going to throw it over to my dad for opening thoughts. The, the It remake, the, Steve, the horrifying Stephen King clown movie, just made $120 million opening weekend, which is like $20 million more than Wonder Woman made. Um, and around what Spider-Man made opening weekend and, and how alive the horror genre movie is. Um, and so, Dad, we're juggling a lot of balls here, and I do want to talk specifically about some of the smaller movies we've seen, too. Um, but l- let me start with um, kind of a bigger picture question, which is, <sighs> do you think in this day and age where people are seeing fewer movies and they're much more expensive and people are more selective that the notion of genre is becoming more important um, and also established properties. So, for example, Marvel movies, which objectively are less good than we would have thought about Ghost in the Shell, for example, Mm -hmm. um, are making way more money because Ghost in the Shell is a... 
sort of niche property. Um, you know, I called a long time ago that the Valerian movie, which had a $200 million budget, I think made $50 million, was going to bomb because no one had ever heard of it. Um, it. It seems like since Avatar, since there's been a brand new property that's really made bank. Um, so for these big movies, do you think it's absolutely necessary that they fall into the horror genre, the comic book genre, the Star Wars genre, and so forth? Well, you know, I I don't know enough about people's movie watching habits in terms of what they choose to to schlep out of their house for versus the movies that they watch they choose to watch at home. And I wouldn't be surprised based on nothing yeah. if people uh will only uh will only go to the trouble of going and paying the money to to go to a movie in a movie theater if they feel it's kind of a blockbustery, big screen deserving experience, mm-hmm. and then they wait to catch everything else on Netflix, Prime, a premium cable, what whatever. So I just don't know enough about how that breaks out. I don't know if you you know anything about it. And then the the, the most recent X factor that was thrown into it, I sent you the article, um, is about how a lot of movie execs feel that. Rotten Tomatoes is screwing things up and preventing people from taking the risk, the moderate size risk, of spending money on going to the movie theater uh, to see movies that get kind of, well, mixed or confusing or, frankly, negative uh, uh, results on, on Rotten Tomatoes. There's a, there's a lot of... Uh, reviews that are skewed negative and i forget whether they said that's both i don't think they talked about i don't think they talked about the the critics ratings i think it was more about the the general audience ratings and they were skewed you know negative to mediocre and they felt that that was a significant um obstacle to people's taking the risk of opening up their wallets for um 13 or 15 dollars which you know i I don't really you know i don't know why that there should be a price barrier to people is that a lot of money for people to pay to see a movie i don't think so um i mean if you're just seeing 3d imax all the time then yes well yeah yeah that's twice as much but i don't you know i mean we live in philadelphia it's not new york or chicago but we can see movies in the city on great screens for like eight nine dollars right and like not even in weird times of the week. So I think people are just, they're spending anywhere from 10 to $50 a month on streaming services, maybe plus or minus cable on top of that. And, you know, I mean, if they can stay home on with their giant television screens and surround sound, I I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's certainly my fairly uneducated, guess about you know what's going on with uh, movie watching habits yeah uh, in the last few years is that um you know that's the streaming services are keeping people home but i'm hoping that they're watching some pretty good stuff at at home you know this like we the small movies that we we love you know i'm gonna keep tying in star wars because again it's zeitgeist thing and it's representative of what is and isn't happening but for example Everyone had to see The Force Awakens in the theater because it was such an event. It was the first yeah. Star Wars movie in 10 years, and it was the first good Star Wars movie in like 30 years. Yeah. And so you had to see it, and you had to see it over and over again. Even though true Star Wars fans will tell you, other than Adam Tuck, <laughs> true Star Wars fans will tell you um, that Rogue One was better than The Force Awakens. Um, right. and there are people who say it's the best Star Wars movie ever or just below The Empire Strikes Back. By the way... Amid all this neo-Nazi shit, yeah, uh, I just want people to know that K- Kushner uh, uh, and um, and Kasdan, the director and writer of the greatest sci-fi movie ever, The Empire Strikes Back, were both like thirty-year-old Jewish guys. Just saying, <laughs> you're welcome, America. Right. G- George, George Lucas <laughs> knew what he was doing. You know, I mean, it's yeah, it's yeah. the Irish and the Jews, right? I mean, Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, yeah. and then uh, you've you know you've got uh, Bob Iger. And right. uh, Larry Kasdan. I mean, it's pretty hilarious. Um, but uh, anyways, point being, Rogue One made half in the theater of what um, 
uh, Force Awakens did, which isn't wow. shocking wow. Uh, because it was a standalone. It didn't have the original cast. Yes, it didn't have Harrison Ford. It didn't have Jedi's and lightsabers. It was very dark, and but. I know for a fact that their post-market sales have been spectacular. Beautiful, beautiful. And the people who are loyal to it, like myself, you know, I mean, like, uh, like I have, you know how you bought me the visual dictionary for yep. the, the Rogue One? It's gorgeous. And I want to get back to the guy who, who writes these books, Pablo Hidalgo, who's in the Central Brain Trust. And this will be one of the topics that we'll table for a little bit later about okay. how one of the progressive things that Star Wars is doing is having a story group that is coming up with yeah. all of this brilliant shit. And as I talk about with Adam, when you'll hear that podcast, you know, he admits that he's not interested in anything outside the movies. But when I asked him, well, do you think the fact that they're creating all of this, you know, secondary material um, for the 5% of us who are like super, super fans, it, it, does it show in, in the quality of the film? He's like, absolutely. Like, you can tell that like every single jacket, every single gun, every single uniform and ship has been painstakingly not just designed, but like, you know, they've come up with reasons for everything and, and, and the logistics behind it. And it shows in the final product. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, uh, so there's an example of a movie Rogue One that you would think maybe would have made a little more money in the movie, but people were happy to watch on their home system. Yes. I think, I I think that's a, that's a, a really useful data point to begin to support some of the hypotheses that we're, we're talking about. So if you look at the top grossing movies, um, if you if you want to test the Rotten Tomatoes, and by the way, you made you made the important distinction about the difference between the critic reviews and the user reviews. Yeah. Um, in the top twenty movies, mm-hmm. and again, it is already in the top twenty movies, but it's a horror movie. It's exactly the type of movie people want to see in a movie theater because they want to be scared and they want to be frightened. And so, I would put as weird as it sounds, horror movies and Star Wars in the same category. That was sort of my genre question. I see. Um, now, the number one uh, movie of the year uh, is domestically is Beauty and the Beast. Yep. But again, something with such grand scale uh, um, and grandeur, I should say, uh, you can totally understand. Um, Wonder Woman being number two, Guardians, Spider-Man, Despicable Me, Logan, Fast of the Furious, Dunkirk, Lego movie, and then at ten you have Get Out. Now, Get Out was one of those mo- was by Jordan Peele, is one of those yes. bizarre like social commentary slash kind of horror films that no one thought would do well and made one hundred and seventy five million dollars on like probably like a ten million dollar budget. So it was really well received. So is that? Let's take this as a case. We didn't see it, but we know people who have seen it. We kind of know what it's about. We definitely know who Peel is. Mm-hmm. Um, was this just a word of mouth? Like you have to see this movie, and people just not even wanting to wait because they wanted to talk. It's like a Game of Thrones thing where you got to see it. The water cooler talk. I don't know. I, I I I would still have to think it got its legs from the, the fact that it fell into a horror genre. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that's the primary driver i'm again mm-hmm. just relatively uneducated guess um but i think it's it's the horror genre that gives its 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 legs mm-hmm. and then maybe peel has no uh, no big does he not have a big social um now his following is huge but not not before the film not so much before, because they were on, you know, they were on Comedy Central for so long together. Yeah, but 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 I I think the horror audience wasn't necessarily like right, right. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think it's a horror thing. It's a genre thing. You know, I do. Is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's the same way. Like if you, you know, if the first time you see the No Man's Land scene in Wonder Woman is on your TV, I don't care how big it is, like. You fucked up, dude. <laughs> Seriously, you know? I mean, it's so powerful. Um, I mean, I, I ended up getting the seventh time in with Wonder Woman. I, I didn't even really want to see it a seventh time in the theater, but I just for that scene, it was worth it, uh, the build-up, and for that scene, it, it, yep. was, it was totally, totally worth it. Yeah. Um, and so um, I, I do think it's a genre thing. And I think, it, you know, it, it, 
it's look our society is all about spectacle these days right i mean mm-hmm. whether it's entertainment or politics it's all yep. about spectacle yeah and and so i think the reason that um they appointed someone as brilliant but also as much of a taskmaster but visionary as kathleen kennedy to run lucasfilm is they realize that when star wars is hitting on all cylinders it is the ultimate movie spectacle still Mm-hmm. 40 years later yep yep and i can't tell you how many podcasts i listen to dad you know of people who are my age or slightly younger slightly older and their kids little girls and boys who are obsessed with star wars yeah that's some great. of the, some of their kids got them back into it like they you know they had even d- um. disconnected but from the cartoons and now the new movies you know the the parents are are, are coming back into it. That's uh, great. it you know and it's a bonding thing between you know uh, uh, and you know, I talk, we, I talk about that, you know, with Ethan uh, on that podcast about you know be, the, the the theme of parents and children. Yes, right. Um, you know, being so central to Star Wars, and uh, and, and you talk you, know, you talk to Eamon about it as well. Talk to Eamon about it, and the thing that I haven't mentioned in all these years is that the. Uh, master-apprentice relationship as portrayed in all the various Star Wars movies is exactly the parent-child relationship, uh, it, mm. metaphorically. Mm. Um, in that, you know, you're trying to impart wisdom as well as knowledge and discipline, but it's also important for the master to realize that they're learning from the apprentice, just like parents are learning from their children, right? Yeah. And that's when things go wrong in the Star Wars universe... And we're going to see this with Mark Hamill and Daisy Ridley with, you know, with Ray and, and Luke, that he's going to have to learn to learn from her as innocent as she is in order to get his head out of his ass, basically, you know, right, and, and, right. Get, and get back on track. Um, and that Han Solo is like somewhat redeemed in the end because he finally humbles himself and, you know, learns from his, you know, his wife and his, ch- his, ch- his, uh, adoptive children as it were, mm-hmm. um, and, and and so forth. Now, horror, of course, is on the exact opposite side of that spectrum, but it still has that spectacle to it that that I think people will continue to go see horror movies in theaters. And because, as as you know, as we've talked about, horror movies are very cheap to make for the most part um, because you're mostly just it's a lot of build up to jump scares, and jump scares is all in the editing and music and sound effects. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to do jump scares, or you have the more more um, brainy uh, horror movies like Get Out, where it's you just need a great script as well as the the more you know traditional like kind of horror elements to it. Now we shouldn't be surprised as much that a movie like Dunkirk, considering Christopher Nolan's record, you know, would do 183 million uh, domestically, uh, which is great considering yes. its hundred million dollar budget. It ended up 500 million worldwide. Wow. Wow! So it got the one third, two third split foreign and abroad, which is pretty amazing. Mm. Um, you know, Christopher Nolan just knows how to deliver. Um, in fact, his name, uh, and this will be running theme of the podcast. His name is one of the names being bandied about to replace Colin Trevorrow, but I don't think he's got enough heart and lightness to him. Not heart, you know what I mean. He doesn't have enough Disney to him to to, to do a Star Wars movie. I don't think that's he's, probably right. He's too dark, um, but from a filmmaking standpoint, would be spectacular. Um, but back to what you were saying with Rotten Tomatoes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, like Split, for example, which is the first good M Night Shyamalan movie, maybe since his first one. Maybe since his first one, right? Um, you know, and it's completely due to James McAvoy's, from what I understand, virtuosic performance. I mean, you could even tell in the trailers as creepy as it was. Yeah, you you could definitely tell. I mean, he 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 looked fabulous. In I mean, the he basically was doing a Tatiana Maslany, right? I mean, he was playing yes. like twenty different versions of himself, essentially. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the sixteenth highest grossing movie of the year, wow. which is much higher than was expected. Just above it, though. And here, here's where the challenge to the Rotten Tomatoes is. Yeah. Is War for the Planet of the Apes. A movie which was reviewed pretty well on um, Rotten Tomatoes. But by both sources? Uh, yeah. 93 critics, 86 audience. Oh, high. Wow. But That's even high. more than that, 
the wow. 93 critics is the average rating was an 8.1 out of 10, which is extremely high, which means the average rating was over a 4 out of a 5 stars. The critics' consensus was war uh, combines breathtaking effects and a powerful, poignant narrative to conclude this rebooted trilogy on a powerful and truly blockbuster note. And yet, it only took in 369 worldwide, 145 domestically, on a 150 budget. People did not go to see this movie. How, how many eight movies did they make? It was a trilogy. They made three. Oh, it was a trilogy. And yeah. what kind of, of reputation did two have? The second one was was awesome. I mean, I, I even saw it. It came out wow. in 14, uh, made $710 million. It was also directed by Matt Reeves, who's the guy who's now going to be directing the Batman movie, taking over from Ben Affleck, who Ben Affleck swears by. Um, so you've got a great director with a great reputation who already did the previous movie. Man, I don't know how you explain that three was a dud. I mean, that's... Really, that's a tough one to explain. But keep in mind, of the original Star Wars movies in 77, 1980, 1983, each one made less than the previous one. Mm. Empire made less than the original, and Return of the Jedi made less than Empire. Hmm. Um, and in fact, part of the reason they had like the Ewoks and stuff in Return of the Jedi was they thought the reason they didn't make as much money was that it was too dark in the second one. And so they wanted to make the, the third more upbeat, you know, with the happy ending and everything. Right. But, you know, audience, I, you know, audience um, participation, I guess, if you can call it that, just goes down over time, I think. Well, how, how do you explain Jurassic then, part two? Because there hasn't been one since the, the 90s. Okay, so, so there was like pent-up demand for it. So back to Colin Trevorrow. So he did one, um, he directed one movie uh before jurassic world an independent movie starring aubrey plaza in 2012 called safety not guaranteed that made very little money uh but had aubrey plaza mark duplass Kristen bell and some other interesting characters uh and was rated very very highly i think at 90 percent. so then he got mm-hmm. jurassic world that made a shit ton of money but he had already been signed on to the Disney team, I think, before Jurassic World even came out. They must have known that it was going to make a lot of money. But then he released a movie this year, a couple months ago, called The Book of Henry, which was roundly panned and nobody saw. Hmm. Um, and uh, Sarah Silverman was in it. Dean Norris from Breaking Bad was in it. Naomi Watts was in it. I mean... Hmm. You know, it had the composer from Rogue One. Like it had, it had like an all-star lineup, but completely bombed. Shortly thereafter, Kathleen Kennedy took away his writing duties. Now he's been fired completely. Now you know th- this is actually an improvement from the previous situation where they they fired uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller from the Han Solo movie like eighty percent through the filming, and now Ron Howard, bless his heart, yeah. is basically reshooting the entire film. Uh, they just added. Uh, recently, um, uh, oh, I'm blanking on his name now, who we love, Paul, um, Bettany. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're having to fill in little things here and there, but they're, they're, they're refilming a lot of it. Um, and Trevor's out and, uh, you know, I, I think if you just, if you look at the Star Wars directors, so J.J. Abrams obviously had done a shit ton of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Ryan Johnson on the surface um, you know, doesn't have a uh, huge resume. Uh, and, I mean, he's only directed four, uh, three films. Uh, the first two, Brick and the Brothers Bloom, made almost no money, um, although were well-reviewed. And then Looper, which was a pretty dope sci-fi time travel movie with uh, yep. Joseph Gordon-Levitt yep. um, and uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis, yeah. Um, however... He did direct some of the like best late uh, uh, season um, Breaking Bad episodes. Oh, wrote, that's wrote right. And directed. Right. And as I'm sure you know, JJ also has plenty of TV experience. Yeah. And they're both in their 40s, right? 
On the other hand, Trevorrow has one huge movie in uh, in Jurassic World. Uh, Gareth Edwards, who did a great job on Rogue One, but really only directed about half of it because they brought in Tony Gilroy from the Bourne franchise to reshoot a bunch of it. Mm-hmm. Um, although Gareth was like a total team player and was like totally down with it, you know, he was he was you know he was down for whatever and it's still mainly his movie but they still had to bring in someone he had done godzilla which did pretty well at the box office but you know nothing amazing that was pretty much all he had done and so i think what happened was that back when disney you know bought the lucasfilm property they wanted all of these guys who were slightly older than me who saw the original movies when they were kids and were huge fanboys yeah and who seemed to be up and coming and I think what they're realize well, they definitely realize now is that they need um, a, a certain class of of writer director. Um, they needed J.J. Abrams and Ryan Johnson more than some uh, like the Lord and Miller guys who did do Twenty One Jump Street and the Lego Movie, which are hilarious and well done, but not really in the kind of the spirit of of Star Wars. And right. so it, it, it's interesting that. A, a film property or institution that takes sort of consistency so seriously uh, is actually looking for directors and writers who are good enough and smart enough to do their own thing that they can trust with it. Yeah, that's interesting. She, you know, she's not firing, Kathleen's not firing these guys because of their. Uh, because they have their own visions, she's firing them because they're just not talented enough to make those visions work within the Star Wars universe. Right. You know, as I talked to, as I talked about with Amon, the reshoots in in Rogue One wasn't because it wasn't good. It was just because it was like it felt too much like a war movie and not enough like a Star Wars movie. Right. And so you know, it, 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 so it, there there is really a distinction between these directors. Matt Reeves, the guy from the Planet of the Apes movies, is also in this category. It'll be interesting to see what he does with the Batman uh, movie. Yeah, for sure. So if we just move to talk a little bit more about uh, some films that we've seen that are sort of in the mid range, but our writer director, perfect example, Edgar Wright, who wrote and directed Baby Driver. Right. Edgar Wright is most well known by people who aren't into indie film for not finishing the Ant-Man project because if he, you know, I don't think he could have been constricted by, by Marvel's, you know, regulations or whatever. And so instead of a $130 million Ant-Man movie, he did a, you know, $30 million baby driver movie, which was, which was fantastic. So fantastic. Wow. What a great film. So we saw Baby Driver and the romantic comedy The Big Six starring Kumail Nanjiani uh, back to back. We love both of them. Um, and both of them were, were sort of, uh, you know, the, 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 the writing really drove what was going on. Now, in the case of The Big Six, they had uh, Michael Showalter, um, who's a hilarious dude that's been around for a while direct but it, you could tell it was really Kumail and his wife's voice coming through with their De- you, know, you definitely story. could tell that you know yeah. the it was all screenplay and uh the degree of difficulty of writing that rom-com is you know really impressive and they they really nailed it let me so let me, let me ask you this then to lead from from all my my blathering um to quote the big lebowski <laughs> <laughs> um is what we're finding out with all of this advanced technology and all these changes in cinema the same thing we always kind of knew, which is that the writing in some ways is the most important thing in these movies? Yeah. I mean, you, you can just do so much with the, uh, with, the, with the technology. And, you know, for us, it's always been screenwriting and, and character development. Um, I mean, you know... Casting doesn't seem to be a, a big challenge because there's so much talent out there that the casting is is almost always wonderful. But it's it's the storytelling and uh, the character development, and that's you know that's what makes a great film. I mean, that being said, there are certainly movies where you love what the director has done. So it's not just yes. it's not just screenwriting, and it's not just um, the uh, the character development, but certainly like with, with with Baby Driver, I mean that's such a beautifully directed movie. Uh, you could really feel that the the director had complete control over it, completely un- understood the vision, and just nailed it. Mm-hmm. But 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 you know in 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 the end, 
I think for me, the thing that I loved about it most, there were a lot of things to love about it, but, you know, I kept saying to you and your mom and whomever that I've never seen that character before any place, the, the, the baby driver character. And it was, just, he was just so starkly different and, and unique. That's, that's what will keep me coming back to, to that movie. Just to watch that kid do his thing was really special. So, you know, Edgar Wright, um, he did some really popular, two really popular indie films that I haven't seen. Um, the first is considered the greatest spoof of horror movies ever called Shaun of the Dead, with making fun of Dawn of the Dead, which was <laughs> Simon Pegg's breakthrough in 2004. <laughs> Yeah. Where, where si- I think I've seen some of it where Simon Pegg is like narrowly avoiding getting eaten by zombies like over and over again, basically, with, you know, oh. hilarious hijinks. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then um, he directed one with, a, I think, a, a pretty all-star cast in 2010 called Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which was sort of a alt, semi-satirical, semi-just off-kilter, off-beat uh non-superhero superhero movie huh. um uh where uh michael Sarah as the erstwhile anti-superhero superhero has to defeat all the evil ex-girl uh, boyfriends of his new girlfriends oh. um and uh anna kendrick's in it aubrey plaza's in it maybe that's where the two of them became buddies yeah Sure. Uh, and we know that that Aubrey and, and Michael Sarah have a past together uh, in 2010, and then yeah, and then Ant Man, and then this. I mean, he's really like an a, a, a tour, uh, you know, director. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think what, what's what's a be a really interesting comparison for what you were saying is Taylor Sheridan, who wrote and directed Wind River. Now, he wrote Hell or High Water, but Hell or High Water was directed by David McKenzie. So, this is actually a good comparison. Obviously, there's a lot of similarities between those two movies, but did you feel like you could tell Taylor was directing his own film, that it was a different director of the material? Because the, the dialogue, the flow of the dialogue was very similar to Hell or High Water, or it shared some things, I think, right? Yeah. No, I... Uh, if I had known, no, I would not have known that there was a uh, that that difference. It, it it wouldn't it wouldn't have struck me. Um, it's, I mean, it didn't have didn't have an auteur feel to it. It was it just felt like a really skilled director in in both instances. Yeah, that do, that doesn't have any sort of special signature approach to directing um, a, a movie. So no, I I wouldn't have known. Yeah, I mean, I I think the whole notion of autorism or whatever, you know, needs to be reexamined because as I've told you, these last couple of Taylor Sheridan movies to me uh, have been better than the the recent westerns that have been so acclaimed by like the Coen brothers um and directors like that. Uh I feel like the Coens have lost some of their basic humanism that informed their early movies and are trying so hard to pack so much in um, to their stuff. Uh, there's a sort of stark realism to and minimalism to, to Taylor Sheridan's work uh, mm-hmm. that, that I really like. It's hard to call Baby Driver minimalist because there's so much action and there's so much going on, but there was a sort of efficiency to it. Yeah, and there and there wasn't like tons of of dialogue, uh, you know. So it wasn't a real wordy yeah. movie. And the, the the brilliant use of of music, obviously, with 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 the main character was was great. Well, and again, to connect it back uh, to 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 the the podcast series, there's not a lot of talking in Rogue One either. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of pregnant pauses and meaningful looks between the various characters. Mm-hmm. And my biggest argument uh, or debate with Tuck about all this was that he felt like, you know, he didn't end up buying into any of the characters. Whereas I argued that I like that they didn't do tons of talking and exposition. Yes. I felt they sold their performance. He felt like Felicity Jones's character was one dimensional. I felt like she sold it completely through the little stuff that she did. 
and the amazing chemistry she had with with Diego Luna. I mean, the most talking was by the robot, you know, Alan Tudyk's robot. <laughs> right. K2. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a fresh one where that came from if you keep mouthing off. Um, yeah. And... Uh, you know, but but we like that we like that in our movies for the most yeah. part. Um, not too yeah. much talking. Go, going back to, to to the westerns, you know, yeah. a, a third western, modern. Well, no, actually, it wasn't a modern western. It was more of a western western. But the Hateful Eight yes. by a, by an obviously auteur director, and I, he, you know, he's obviously Tarantino. Uh, uh, t- yeah, Tarantino. Um, so there's a big difference watching uh, a tar- Tarantino. Western than these two more contemporary westerns, uh, Wind River and uh, and Hell or High Water, which don't feel like they they do not feel like they were directed by a a director who's trying to make a directorial statement. Yeah, like Tarantino does. Yeah, and I think that you know I don't want to give all the credit to Tarantino because there's a lot of factors uh, with, with how movies are trending. But I think the success of movies like Hell or High Water, Wind River, Baby Driver, Logan, Deadpool, and the fact that a lot of these PG-13 movies are bombing because they're not really for kids and they're not really for adults, like mm-hmm. Valerian, for example, mm. you know, I, I think it, it, it is... You know, again, going back to the horror genre as well, I think rated R movies is going to be one of the things that keeps the movie theaters open because it's a way for people, adults who aren't married, to have a, a night out and do something different. It's a way for parents to get a babysitter and go see a serious movie that they don't want to screen on their own television right. with the kids home, right? right. Um, to see a horror movie. But outside of that, you know, it's a lot of... Uh, genre, um, you know, IP, you know, intellectual property movies just going at each other. I mm. mean, the difference between Wonder Woman, Guardians, and Spider-Man is less than $70 million between the three of them. Hmm. You know, arguably, the, the $20 million more that Wonder Woman made than Guardians is at least partially due to our political and societal uh, situation. I mean, it's it's certainly worthy to be way more than that, but you know what I'm saying in terms yes. of you know. I mean, Spider-Man already beat. They just released in China, and so they've already beaten Wonder Woman internationally now because you know the Chinese want to see Spider-Man. They don't want to see Wonder Woman. Yeah. But the fact that Logan is number six, and I know Dunkirk was technically PG-13, but it, you know it's still a very adult movie at eight. It's a very yeah yeah it's a very adult movie. And then you have Get Out at 10. And then you have, you know, again, movies that made good money around the world, like Pirates of the Caribbean and Kong, but that didn't do that well here. And I think one of the themes that you and I have been hammering home is let's have fewer PG-13 movies and more great PG family movies and then more great rated R movies, right? Yeah, right. So I'm thrilled that Beauty and the Beast uh, is it maybe technically a PG-13 movie, but it's basically a PG movie. I'm thrilled that that got number one. Despicable Me got number five. The Lego Movie's at nine. The Boss Baby's at 11. Cars is at 14. So, the, okay, so let's let's throw this into our, our, little, uh, our little crucible here. So mm-hmm. what about the success, the continued success of kids' movies in the theater? Why, why, bring, why bring kids to the theater? Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, why don't why why do parents? You're talking about to all the the animated movies. Yeah, I mean, Despicable Me three, which no one yeah. really wanted to see, and uh, you know, it doesn't seem like anyone would care about. It. It made two hundred sixty million dollars domestically. It was a fifth. It's the fifth highest movie. I you know, I don't know. I think it's a um a simple wholesome way to get the kids out of the house and do yep. something fun and 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 entertaining and it's a it's a big event for a kid to go to a movie theater the big screen the dark theater all the other kids so it's it's a it's the spectacle factor for for children Mm -hmm. so we've got the firmly established properties like the comic book movies yeah and by the way why was wonder woman great was it because it was wonder woman and because it was dc nope it was because it was Patty Jenkins, Gal Gadot, and Chris Pine. That is why it was so great. 
Oh, yeah. The, right. The three factors. Tremendous direction, directing, a tremendous storytelling, and great, great character development. The, I mean, the best comic book love story ever. I don't know how yeah. anyone's going to top it. You yeah. know? I mean, mm-hmm. by the way, Dad, um, I might have texted this to you, but the uh, Star Wars nerds, men and women, are there's a slow clamor for trying to get Patty Jenkins to get on one of these big Star Wars movies. Yeah, you just texted me that a couple hours ago. Yeah. Unfortunately, she wants to do Wonder Woman. Not unfortunately, but she also wants to do Wonder <laughs> Woman 2. And the male nerds at DC want her to do the new Superman movie uh, because she'll do a much better job than Zack Snyder has been doing. So she's oh. everyone wants the, her to do their pet nerd movie. But I have to think, um, this would be a, good, a, a little good sidebar here. Talk about female directors. Mm-hmm. So Ava DuVernay just keeps winning awards. You know how they give out the Emmys like over the course of like the week or whatever? Uh-huh. She won like three or four fucking Emmys. Wow. Wow. For all the programming she does on television. Like her 13th documentary wins four Emmy awards. What was it what was it a documentary on? It's called Oh, it's called 13th. Sorry, it's not her 13th documentary. It's about mass incarceration. One nominate it was nominated for eight awards and won four, including outstanding documentary writing, outstanding motion design, outstanding music and lyrics by Co- wow. our boy Common. Wow! She gave a very emotional acceptance speech, which you guys can uh, post online. Um, and of course, she won for Selma as well. Her show, which I always forget the name on Oprah's network, which gets like four to five million weekly viewers, even though it's on like a bizarre cable network owned by oh my Oprah. Goodness. Oh my goodness. Guess, uh, it's one of the most watched shows on television. She's, you know, currently rapping with Chris Pine and other actors, uh, A Wrinkle in Time, uh, with a very diverse cast, which is a, a treasured book that we all grew up with. Uh, you know, it's sort of like. It's sort of like the headiest sci-fi for like when you're like 10 years old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's talking about like quantum physics and stuff like that, but in, in a way that you can understand. Like that that leads to, if you're a nerd, that will lead you directly to Star Trek, basically. But it's for kids a little bit younger. So she's at Disney already. Um, you know, her and Ryan Coogler share like a giant studio office space. They're good buddies. So her name is in the ring as well um, for Star Wars, among other things. I don't know if Coogler is a Star Wars guy, but he certainly got the chops and the heart to be able to pull it off if, if they wanted it to. And with Kathleen Kennedy, you know, and increasing diversification, it would be really interesting to, to get a woman to finally direct one of these Star Wars movies. mm and like I, th- I would argue that Wonder Woman shares a lot of the same qualities oh, as, as yeah. a great as a great Star Wars movie. Yes, yes, yeah. I- I'm sure doing a Star Wars movie would not be a push for her. It's 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 an it's an appealing, timeless, but yet still original origin story. It's a it's a char- it stars an adult a young an adult character but who's still very childlike and immature who's growing up and learning about the world, uh, discovering their powers and how powerful they are and being both attracted and scared. I mean, it's really the Jedi thing, you know. I mean, yes. she could totally nail it. I don't know if she cares about Star Wars at all. And she was so great with the heart stuff and, you know, the emotional stuff in, in, in Wonder Woman, which is what made Wonder Woman so special. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Wonder Woman w- w- wins the award for making the most people cry th- yeah. uh, this year. It, yeah. And maybe for a few years. Um, which, which, is, which is completely due to her. Yes. Yeah. Wait, due to her, her, who, her? The director. Yes. Well, and Gal's performance, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, Gal is on the most recent Rolling Stone cover. Um, it's so hard to find mag- like good magazines these days. Like, where do I get them if I'm not at an airport? But uh, so, if you happen to be at a bookstore, grab a copy for me of it's, of Gal Gadot on Rolling Stone. Oh, Rolling Stone. Oh, yeah. Oh, all right. She's the cover story, and it's great because she's wearing like a very like uh, like beautiful but not over the top like dress but she's also got the bracelets on she's got the, uh-huh. ga- the gauntlets on at the same time uh-huh. in her like adorable gal gadot smile mm-hmm. and so you know i i, I think look <laughs> 
Kathleen Kennedy has fired four directors and semi-fired a fifth uh, in Star Wars in the last two years. And they're all young white dudes who don't have a lot of history. So I think we're running out of excuses where we keep giving you know, big properties to white guys who maybe have one big hit in their entire career. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like, you know, like a guy like Colin Trevorrow, who was handed the Jurassic Park franchise, like I could have made a billion dollars with that movie, you know, <laughs> like little kids like dinosaurs and Chris Pratt, like big surprise. Right. Um, and so, you know what I mean? I, I don't know if, if it's a coincidence, but there was just a huge article in the New York Times. I don't know if it was in the magazine section, the Sunday magazine section, or it was about how um, the title of it was something like women are making the best rock and roll t- mm. today. Hmm. Like literally? Like like act, like music? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the, the w- women are making the best rock and roll music mm-hmm. today. And, and they, they give a whole bunch of examples of, I don't know if it's a dozen, it might be 16 different artists slash groups um, women, you know, women artists, women groups, and uh, so you know they're 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 coming to their into their own in all sorts of uh, areas, not just film. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's circle back to to the main point here, and then we'll uh, we'll sign off for now um, sure. because I, I I would like to do a further podcast talking about specifically like Wind River, Ingrid Goes West, more about Baby Driver and. Big sick. Fun. There's just yeah. so much to talk about. I yeah. just wanted to sort of talk about how um, how great the year had been, mm-hmm. and against all odds, that some of these smaller movies are beating some huge movies. I mean, even at their own terms, let alone cost to you know um, output input to output, if you will. Yeah. Another interesting topic is you know why couldn't they make the Dark Tower somewhat better? And like, you know, like, but it's also an example of them not committing to what could be a ginormous franchise because they already have all the books and it's a super famous author and they have big names. So at some point, the studios just kind of give up on these movies or, or, or you have the Matt Damon in the Great Wall situation where they just don't care about the American audience because the Chinese will spend tons of money on this stuff. Go ahead. Well, I don't know. With Dark Tower... Uh, we we got let down by the writing, didn't we? Well, yeah, but also the fact that you know, someone pointed out, like, you're ready to go to all these different worlds, and you spent half the time in New York City, which I just freaking hate. You know, yeah, like I, yeah. I I want my that that's why for in my book, even though they're both financial failures, um, although Warcraft made way more money overseas, Warcraft was much more successful because at least it took us to a different world and told us a totally fantastical story. Yes. That was adventurous and looked awesome. And even if it made no sense and had bizarre pacing and, you know, character problems and so forth, like mm-hmm. it was more, you know, that's a movie I've watched numerous times just for sheer, um, sheer, uh, enjoyment. Um, just really quickly, Dad, and then we'll, we'll circle back to a final Star Wars known here. So here, here are my top 10 from 2016. I was looking at Hidden Figures, Free State of Jones, Edge of 17. Hunt for the Wilder People. That's my mm-hmm. number one. The Accountant. Yep. That's probably my number th- three or four. Hell or High Water and Deadpool are at the top as well. Yep. I in the Sky, Queen of Katwe, and Eagle Huntress. Uh, great great yeah. movies. Great movies. Great, I mean, spectacular movies. Great movies. But right. I couldn't find that many outside of them when I was putting this together in my n- never released <laughs> podcast from the beginning of the year. What me- meaning there weren't another ten of that quality? Yeah, well, I didn't include uh, Rogue One, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't include. I probably wouldn't have included Captain America: Civil War, anyways. But if there was a top twelve, I'd put Civil War and Rogue One in the twelve. But after that, it was a huge drop off. Really? Yeah, whereas I already have more than 10. I mean, for this year, I have Logan, Lego Batman, Big Sick, Wonder Woman, Beauty and the Beast, Dunkirk. I'm putting Get Out in because I am going to get the guts to see it eventually, and I know I'll love it. Baby Driver, Wind River, Ingrid Goes West. Uh, we know the Star Wars movie is going to be good. We have Thor Ragnarok. We've got Joss Whedon doing the Justice League, so more Wonder Woman. I mean, how lucky are we to get two Wonder Woman and 
in right. one year. Um, John Wick was pretty good. Yeah. Ghost in the Shell, you and I really enjoyed. Oh, yeah, that was great. I don't know why that didn't get more. Yeah, leadership. that's definitely a podcast we need to, uh, we'll do at some point. Is mm-hmm. you and I can, we don't have to do a commentary. Maybe we just sort of rewatch either together or separately the movie, take some notes and talk about why we think okay. it failed would be mm-hmm. really interesting. So really quickly, the end of the year, as it should be, we've got Star Wars Episode Eight. Ryan Johnson, everyone is thrilled. There, there's been no hiccups in this entire thing. They're ahead of schedule, which never happened. Among the episodes that he directed, I forgot this, in Breaking Bad is The Fly, which <laughs> was the one episode I initially had to skip. Yeah. Because yeah, it was, it was it's so Kafka-esque. I yes, mean, it's totally like, Kafka, right? It's just like Metamorphosis, essentially. Yeah. But when I finally rewatched it, and I realized that the, the half of it was him unloading to Jesse, the second half of the episode was I. I actually loved it the second <laughs> time I, I went through it. He also directed what's considered the best episode, which is called Ozymandias. Season 5, episode 14. This is, it, it's in the aftermath of the uh, shootout. Uh, Hank's wounded, uh, Gomi's killed. Oh, I thought, wait, I thought Hank was killed. Um, let's see, Walt begs Jack to spare his brother-in-law, offering Jack his entire $80 million fortune. He then asks Hank to sco- swear that he will drop the... Oh, Hank refuses to beg for his life, right? And then they kill. That's when they execute. So that's the execution of Hank episode. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, that's also the episode where White Walt, as they say, quote, spitefully reveals to Jesse that he was there when Kristen Ritter died and decided yeah. not to save her life. So that, and there's even more that happens. Wow. Uh, that's, that's, that's a dense episode. Yeah. So he, he's directed, like I said, some of the best late uh, episodes, the fact that he's doing the middle, ep- uh, you know, episode of star Wars, which is going to be darker. It's supposed to be just like the empire strikes back, uh, makes sense, but he's such a sweet guy. Um, and real, that's why I sent you that little interview clip with him. And he's, he's also a huge fanboy, but he really knows what he's doing. And he's in that, again, he's in that sort of Taylor Sheridan, you know, like auteur, but super professional kind of level. And so it'll be interesting to see if he has the, the energy to, to do another one. Yeah. Um, or whether they'll go another way. But I just think it's interesting in this day and age that, you know, <laughs> episode eight's being directed by a guy who's best known for breaking bad. Well, you know, there's there's increasingly less difference and differentiation between film products and tv products i mean tv has gotten so c- cinematic well, that's, what was good. that's what the comparison i was trying to make earlier with jj and uh Rian johnson is or ryan johnson whatever is um <laughs> the fact that you're doing episodic movies i wonder if it helps to have experience doing episodic television interesting i mean jj had tons of experience with with fringe and with lost most famously and and, you know alias i mean he's done a million television series before he moved into film Mm. um you know we're seeing we're seeing movement both ways right maybe this will be the fun thing is we're seeing a ton of film actors come I mean, how many classic middle-aged famous film actors have come to television in the last 10 years? I mean, tons, tons. It was first it was Glenn Close and then it was everybody else. Yeah, right. Right? She was like right. the first one. And the, right. and uh it, but we're also seeing television actors like our girl Catherine Winnick um and directors and writers like Rian Johnson, you know, go go the other way. And mm-hmm. I think this might be the, the you know the key to what we're talking about is some people are going to enjoy this movie on the big screen. Some people are going to enjoy it exclusively on the small screen. Some people like myself will be enjoying it on both. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you do kind of need to have experience working in both formats the, in this day and age. Yeah. Because in order for the movie to have longevity, it needs to work on the semi-small screen. Um, as well, you know, it, it, as well on the big screen. Does that make sense? Yeah, it would be really interesting to hear uh, some of the most accomplished of the bimodal um, uh, movie TV makers. You know, the ones that have gone both ways, so to speak. It would be interesting to hear them pontificate on um, the, you know, the 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 synergies and the 
whatever between um, experience in one in one modality and and the other and if there any if if they would in hindsight they would have preferred to start in TV or preferred to start in film or vice versa you know just to hear them pontificate about the the issues of of going both ways. I mean, Idris Elba has been not either picking or having luck with the best film properties. Right. But he's certainly convincing and capable on the big screen. The movie with him and Kate Winslet coming up, I don't know if it's my kind of movie. I hope it's good, though, just because I love him and her, (laughs) but I love him. And he's, you know, he he came from TV. You know, his best stuff oh, is on television. He's spectacular on the small. He's been so, so spectacular on the small screen. I think, it, is it possible that True Detective Season 1 was the um, the season of television that officially destroyed the line between the two mm. mediums? Mm. Where you have two ginormous film stars. Yes, Woody Harrelson comes from TV, but he hasn't been associated with television in 20 years. Right, exactly. Now he's he's right. That's when you right. have two ginormous film personalities, just wreck a TV show in all the best ways possible. I mean, people hold that extremely dearly to their hearts. The first season of uh, of True Detective. It was spectacular. It really was. Um, you know, I can't. I don't know what other series that happened. Uh, by the way, I'm just cycling down here. Uh, Alan Sepinwall, who's written for Grantland, a million other people, big time TV critics, stated in 2016, "quote If you were to ask me what is the best hour of dramatic television ever, I would say Breaking Bad's Ozymandias and not think twice about it." Wow! It had a perfect 10 score from 12,000 IMDb reviewers in three days before dropping to a pathetic 9.9. Well, I'll I'll put up the final episode of, of Orphan Black against anything, and okay. there's got to be yeah. there's got to be an episode or two from The Wire that that yeah. would would give it a serious run for its money as well. Oh, this is what's really interesting. So the episode was watched by 6.37 million viewers, which yeah. was a million increase from the previous episode. So somehow it was all because it was all building up to the standoff, and so I yeah. guess word of mouth. This is where this is where Breaking Bad broke bad, if you if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. This is where it went from like cult to really cult to like legendary television. Mm. So, um, all right, Papa Bizzle. Well, right. I, I know I was sort of rambling tonight. Um, I wanted to cover a lot of topics. Um, I think we can safely say that we've been very happy with our film-going experiences this year. Extremely. And, and, and th- th- this final quarter could, could you know, could really yeah. be spectacular. Yeah. And, you know, just to close it on, on the, the, the Star Wars note, because I've been texting you this a lot, but I just want to put it on the podcast – you know, Star Wars nerds are not unha- like under the Star Wars nerds understand why what's happening is happening. That there's a course correction going on, but I, I'm just very entertained by it. You know that 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 you have this really empowered female director who's basically you know Spielberg's uh, producer of choice, going back to the Close Encounters and Indiana Jones days. Right. Just openly saying, we care so much about this product that we don't really care about the PR fallout. We are going to get the best people possible to, to do all these things. Um, and uh, and by the way, um, one of the outsider names being floated for the for the final film is Dave Filoni, who is in charge of all the animation for um, uh. Lucasfilm. Oh. which I, I thought there was never never a chance. Um, but that that was definitely be like, I'm not going to say it'd be my dream job, but to be in the fly in the wall with the with Lucasfilm story group for like a week would be so freaking cool. Yeah, To really see how would. they talk about everything. But, um, you know, I listen to all these podcasts, and it's like the, 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 the actors and the voice actors and the writers and the directors, they are as nerdy or more nerdy than we are. Like, and that's some. Huh. You know? And, and, and huh. I think that's, again, what, why I think, in the end, Star Wars is going to outlast Marvel and DC and all this, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean. It's going to outlast all these franchises in in the film world because it spans the generation it spans the genders it spans ethnicities and all sorts of backgrounds but most of all the people who are involved in it are are like the biggest nerds possible 
and uh you know you know these voice actors dad they do tons of work but this is the stuff that really gets them amped and juiced Mm. you know what i mean Mm. um and uh yeah i just i don't know what to compare it to in terms of a media empire because it's both circumscribed in a certain way but also there's no there's no limits to it and um you know as you know i'm working on a treatment of a story within this universe and that's where a lot of people start because there's just there's so much raw material to work with exactly um and it's just a beautiful thing so well thank you again well thanks you know i always love talking about the movies so thanks for giving me the opportunity Really quick, um, we we, uh, we will eventually do an Orphan Black retrospective. I know you, you were very thrilled with the final season. I'm on oh. like three episodes in, I think. Um, and uh, did we talk Defenders? We have not talked Defenders. You gave it sort of medium thumbs up, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's it's worth seeing because you get to see Jessica and yeah. uh, you get to see um, Electra and yeah. You know the women definitely stole the show. Yeah, and Luke Luke, Luke Cage Luke Cage is is great in Luke it. Luke Cage is great. Yeah, yeah. But the women de- the women definitely stole the show. I mean Rosario yeah. and Misty and yes. uh, and Colleen with the sword. And I mean the the women definitely stole the show. I thought. Yeah. Um, yep. Absolutely. And uh, so, um, oh right, so uh, definitely bookmarking your calendar in November. It's only a couple months away because we've got Thor, Justice League, and the Punisher. Dad, we got the Punisher. Oh series. yeah, Johnny man. Boy, uh, Johnny man, we, B. Bizzlecast listeners, we'll leave you with this. We were watching Wind River, which is a very <laughs> dark and disturbing movie. And during the darkest and disturbing part, although he's a good guy in it, Burnthal comes out of nowhere. We had no idea he was in it, and he's <laughs> was- just a maniac. Uh, that was so much that was one of the great surprises ever it was we had no we were looking at each other we're like is this a joke yeah right (laughs) oh man that was great that was a great moment cool all right all right see you later all right bizzlecast listeners thank you thank you papa b and we are out